If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clear statements that are in the archives that France is going to use its French West African soldiers to save the lives of white soldiers. It's going to put them in the most dangerous positions in the frontal assaults, in the first wave, to save white lives. That was David Olashoga describing the fate of some African troops during the First World War. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, this week saw the anniversary of the start of the First World War. And if you'd like to read more about the conflict, then why not check out our August issue, which is on sale now. It's a First World War special edition, with articles on the countdown to war, great myths about the conflict, 
and about how the war is being remembered across the globe. You can get hold of a copy in all good news agents and in our digital formats. The BBC has of course been covering the anniversary in a range of ways on TV, radio and online. And among the programmes broadcast this week was part one of The World's War, a series that considers how the conflict in Europe drew in millions of people from other parts of the globe. It's presented by the historian and broadcaster David Olashoga, and I had a chance to catch up with him last week to find out more. Just before we hear my interview with David, though, it's time for a short advertisement break. It's a long way to It's 100 years since the outbreak of the First World War, and at the Woodland Trust we're offering a really personal way to remember those involved. Dedicating a tree in one of four centenary woods we're creating across the UK. These ever-growing tributes to the past will stand for generations to come. To dedicate your tree, visit woodlandtrust.org.uk or call us on 0800 915 1914. The Woodland Trust is a UK-registered charity. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now here is David Olashoka. Why did you settle on the name The World's War for your book and TV series? Desperation. There really are no great titles for anything to do with the First World War or World War One or whatever we're going to call it. It's, it's a very difficult subject area to find a title for. And the World's War, at least to me, which I think works better on paper than it does spoken, mm. it does give a sense of ownership to the world and the world beyond Europe. And that, to me, seemed important. And we say at the beginning of the series that the people who came from beyond Europe to fight and to labour in the First World War and the people to whom the First World War arrived in their lands, it was their war too. And that sense of ownership 
in that apostrophe seemed important to me. It's asking an apostrophe to do a hell of a lot of work, yeah. but um, I hope it works. It's called the First World War, World War One. but do you feel that, certainly in Britain, we think of it too much as a European war rather than a global war? I think we think of it too much as a European war. I think we think of it too much as a Western European war. And I think that's understandable, because the Western Front was so horrific, so enormous, so out of out of kilter with Britain's military experience on land for a hundred years, that the visceral shock of encountering this and sending mass armies into this charnel house just over the channel suffocates other elements of the war. And it's not just the war outside of Europe, it's the war in Eastern Europe. And I think it's understandable, but I also think it's regrettable. Obviously, this is a large sense of story of empire. How do people particularly in the British and French empires, how did they feel when the war broke out? Did they feel that they too were at war? It's amazingly varied. I think what we can say is the British, uh, the British government and, and the king did feel the empire was at war. The king described it as my empire united and resolute in, 19, in 1914. It was enormously varied. There were millions of people for whom the, the arrival of the war was something that passed them by and they wouldn't have heard about it till many years into the war, if at all. It was perfectly possible to be a farmer, a peasant, a fisherman in an obscure part of the British Empire and for the First World War to have no impact on your life. But it was also possible for the First World War to transform your community, to transform your life, to end your life. What we do see in parts of the Empire is a wave of enthusiasm in 1914 that was comparable to the wave of enthusiasm that gripped the European capitals. It wasn't universal, it was tended to be among the ruling elite. In the white dominions, it was far more universal. And there was a stronger sense in someone like Australia, even more so Canada, that this was Britain's war and therefore their war. We have to remember that half of the Canadian army that served between 1914 and 1918 in France were British-born. Mm -hmm. For them, it very much was their war. Among the Indian elite, there was also a sense that this was an opportunity to be grasped because it was a chance to renegotiate the terms in which the empire worked. It was a chance to get a better deal out of London by showing loyalty during the crisis. You would be able to renegotiate the terms under which the empire worked. And there was a great deal of enthusiasm for this idea. This is our chance. This is our chance for the Indian uh, sepoys to go and what they do what they'd been not denied to do in the Boer War and go and fight against a European enemy, demonstrate their loyalty, demonstrate their martial skills and win for their country and for their ruling elite. Uh, this this better deal. And I think we often forget that there were people among native elites within the British Empire and the French Empire who wanted a more equitable empire rather than a breakdown of empire. I think we always imagine that it's all about all or nothing. It's independence or empire. There was a middle ground, which a lot of people who were doing reasonably well in some cases out of the empire, especially the ruling elite of India, thought this was a good opportunity. Obviously, large numbers of people came from places like India and Africa and the West Indies to fight alongside Britain and also France. How were they persuaded to fight? Was it just a prospect of the money or were any of them compelled to come and fight? Was it patriotism? Again, it's an extremely varied picture. Amongst the Indian sepoys of the two divisions um, who land in, in Marseille in the autumn of 1914, they're professional soldiers. They are soldiers from uh, a martial tradition, albeit a martial tradition in some ways bequeathed to them by the British. They have a strong sense of military honour 
of this term is art. They also have a strong sense of professionalism. And there's an idea that you can improve your family's lot. You can improve your village. You have a reputation uh, as a family, as a village, as a clan, as a race, to be proved on the battlefield. This is a professional army and they fight because they've been ordered to. And in some senses, that element of the deployment is no different from being deployed on the northwestern frontier. The geography, the encounters, uh, the type of war they find themselves in is completely different. But the principles of being a soldier who was, to use the phrase, tasted the king's salt, who had done well out of being in the army, the uniform, the wages, the money to send back to your family, now was your obligation to pay back. That is in some ways as good as it gets. These are soldiers, professional soldiers who feel it's their duty to fight. On the other end of the extreme are people who are clearly compelled. The stories of recruitment in French West Africa is one of the darker chapters of the First World War. Well, one of the darker unknown chapters of the First World War, I should say. There was an application onto deeply hierarchical societies of a quota system demanding men be sent to the recruitment stations to be trained to be deployed in the war. And if you subcontract the recruitment to intermediaries who are paid by results and, and you impose them on a quota system, what you get is you get the powerful in the society determining who should go and who should stay, which means orphans, the weak, people who are effectively in a form of slavery or servitude, being the people who get thrust into the arms of the recruiters. That's not to say that everybody in French West Africa, or French North Africa for that matter, was coerced, but we certainly know that some were. And there are stories of recruitment teams in the rural areas of French West Africa capturing people, walking into villages, seizing men. There's even stories of men being taken across country in chains to the recruitment stations. And that's an extremely uncomfortable, mm -hmm. disturbing idea that Africans were chained, seized, kidnapped to be taken to war, to fight in a war that was supposed to be about the ideals of French liberty. And even more uncomfortable is that those recruitment drives are horribly redolent of the slave trade. They have that feel of the capture of Africans, the seizure of people in chains to be taken to a port. There's lots of differences, but it's uncomfortably close. And when these people then arrived in Europe, what was their experience like of fighting alongside Europeans? Were they, were they treated equally? I think almost every soldier who fought in the First World War who was from beyond the confines of Europe experienced racism. They experienced treatment that was inequitable. But they also, there were also positive experiences. I think the, in the chaos of the autumn of 1914, a lot of the Indian soldiers found themselves not fighting in their units as divisions, as battalions, but fighting as piecemeal units mixed up with British soldiers. And I think in those moments there, are, there is a sense that the risk is so great, the enemy is so powerful, the situation is so perilous that people fight side by side. But it's also very, very carefully managed. There's a very clear decision to make sure that Indians are recognised in medals. We have the first Indian VC in, uh, in the autumn of 1914. So there is a, a, a sense of this being a managed encounter between two groups of people. What I discovered making the series and writing the book to go with it was that when it comes to the 
application of racism exported from home territories to the Western Front, the countries that stand out are South Africa's treatment of the South African Native Labour Corps and America's treatment of the African Americans in their army. There's racism everywhere, there's selective treatment everywhere. The, those two really stand out as people who are two groups of men of African descent who are very, very heavily managed, who are subject to levels of abuse and levels of segregation that you don't see otherwise. But there's one other story which is really important, which I think is a different form of racism. It's not the sort of racism of soldiers not liking fighting alongside black soldiers or, or brown soldiers, but racism that is born of racial theory. And we see that in the, in the way that the French version of the martial racist theory, the theory of the Rascaillère, how that is applied to black West African soldiers and how that shapes how they're used on the battlefield and that which in turn influences their levels of casualties. So was it the case then that so European powers would, say, deliberately send, I don't know, Indian or African troops into the most dangerous combat situations because they didn't value them as much? We clearly see with the French the theory of that some African races are naturally predisposed towards martial lifestyles, that they are natural warriors, and that in the most crazy elements of the theory, that they have a different physiological structure that makes them inured somehow to the shock of industrial warfare. We see that theory, which comes out of the book of Charles Mongin, the great theorist of, of France's idea of a force noir, a black army. We see those theories shaping the army's strategy that dictates that West African soldiers are best used for their shock value, that they are shock troops, that they should be used in frontal assaults because they have this capacity of pure brute force and savagery which will shock the defenders. Mm. It's a theory born of the racial determinism of the 19th century. It's a theory born of the cold anthropology of the French Empire and other empires. But it has an absolute concrete effect on the soldiers fighting for France on the Western Front and elsewhere. Because if you're one of those groups, like the Wolof, who the French have decided, or French theorists have decided, are naturally warrior people, you will find yourself in frontal assaults. You will find yourself not being involved in defensive operations. You will find yourself not being involved in support operations, but used over and over again in frontal assaults. And we all know that the worst place to be in the Western Front is to be involved in a frontal assault. It becomes so clear that that's how the French West Africans are being used, that white French soldiers come to understand the arrival of African units in the frontline trenches is a portent of an attack. If the Africans turn up, you know something's going to happen because they wouldn't be here if there wasn't going to be an attack. And what we see through the work of academics like Joe Lunn is that if you do the number crunching, if you account for the amount of time that French West African soldiers are in the front as opposed to away from the front in the winter, because it was felt they couldn't cope with the winters, their death rates are significantly different from those of the white soldiers that they're fighting amongst. And by 1917 and 1918, after the crisis of the Nivelle Offensive, or what we call the mutiny in the French army, there are clear statements that are in the archives that France is going to use its French West African soldiers to save the lives of white soldiers. It's going to put them in the most dangerous positions, in the frontal assaults, in the first wave, to save white lives. Clemenceau says this. Other officers say this. 
There's really no question about this. Do we know how these West African soldiers themselves felt about this situation? Did they leave many records of their thoughts and their feelings about being used in this way? There's a handful of diaries by um, French West African soldiers and African soldiers in the, in the war altogether. They tend to be soldiers who were more educated in order to, to leave, leave a literary record, and they, they therefore tend often to be soldiers who buy into the French imperial project in a way that's not representative. So from them we get a more idealised view of the idea that they are there to serve France, that France is a the French Empire is a brotherhood of races and that France has bequeathed upon them civilization and somehow this great project is a joint enterprise between white humanity and black humanity. We'll never really know the extent to which those views are representative. But what we do have, in addition to those handful of biographies, is, a, is some very good work of oral histories with historians like Joe Lunn, who I mentioned earlier. They've gone to Africa. This work was mainly done in the 80s. And they recorded the experiences of a wider range of French West African soldiers. And they, you, get a, you get a picture of people, in some ways, no different from other armies. Some enjoyed their service. Some have horrific memories, or most have horrific memories, and some feel that they were mistreated by France. It's a, I think it's no different really than any other army. And soldiers need to make sense of what they've been through. They need to rationalise the sacrifices that they've made and the things that they've seen. So you get a very varied picture. So from the other point of view, how did, say, German troops react to the fact that they were being fought by Indians, Africans? Did they treat them differently to the white people they were fighting? Well, again, we've got two sources there. We've got German propaganda Mm -hmm. and we've got the accounts of of German soldiers. There's a marked shift from the first months of the war where the German newspapers are describing the presence of African and Indian soldiers on the Western Front as evidence of the the desperation of the Allies, that, that this is one of the novelties of war. We're so strong, we're so clearly going to win that our enemies are being forced to use these lesser human beings to defend themselves. There's a notable shift at the end of 1914 where the motif that we're going to have for the rest of the war emerges, which is that the presence of these non-white lesser peoples, these supposed savages, is a racial betrayal by France and by Britain against the entire white race. To the Germans, the presence of these non-white soldiers is, is the counter-argument to the attacks made on Germany for the crimes that they committed in Belgium and in France in the first months of the war. Germany fought an appalling propaganda war. The excesses, the brutality of the German army, especially towards civilians and the front in in Belgium and France, was a gift to Western propagandists. They saw within this idea that it was a war crime, that it was illegal, that it contravened the rules of war to bring non-white peoples to Europe. They saw within that an opportunity for a counter-argument and they exploited it as much as they can. And they exploited it to neutral opinion, especially America. And you see, I have a copy of, um, of a report that the Germans produced in 1915 making this argument that this is against the rules of war and that these non-white soldiers are behaving in ways that are barbaric and illegal. The copy I've got is from America. It's in English. It's been produced by the German Foreign Office. There's a reason why it's American, because the potential of appealing to America, a country that operates on racial segregation, that is horrified by the idea of armed black soldiers fighting white soldiers. 
this is a, seen as a potential, a fruitful environment in which Germany to make this propaganda case. And there's a Darwinian element to this case. It's this idea that, that Germany is strong and would win the war if the war was being fought legally. But the Darwinian dice are being loaded by the bringing of these supposedly savage peoples to Europe. There's always this Darwinian undertone to it, but there's also this sense, very strong sense of victimhood. You hear again and again in propaganda, in the accounts of pro-German journalists like Sven Hayden, the Swedish uh, journalist who travels behind the line in 1914 and 15, you hear again and again this idea that the presence of non-white soldiers on the Western Front is proof that the British and the French don't just want to defeat Germany, they want to destroy the German nation, destroy the German people, and stamp out German culture. And there's a paranoid sense of victimhood which focuses on non-white soldiers and their supposed crimes, which becomes a trope of German propaganda really throughout the war. Do we know whether they were treated differently if, if say, they were captured by the Germans than a white European soldier would have been? Well, the range of soldiers who were captured by, by the Germans is enormous. One of the most interesting divisions is soldiers who were Muslim, who were seen by elements of the German Foreign Office as potential uh, Asian provocateurs who could be turned and used to foment Islamic discord and Islamic religious discord in jihad if they could be sent to war zones, if they could be converted into soldiers to fight against the British and the French alongside the Turks. So there's this very, very complicated, intricate and in some ways fanciful program to indoctrinate, to turn, to use the Cold War terminology, the Muslim soldiers captured on the Western Front. There's a clear program to try to take them to special camps in Germany to use their presence, to use their, their, their treatment, which is really, for the most part, very good, as a great propaganda weapon to show to the rest of the world this is how Germany treats the Muslim soldiers who have fallen into its hand. Here's the respect that we showed them. Here's the cultural, the dietary, the religious respect that we've poured upon them. And it was a great propaganda vehicle for Germany to prove to Muslim world opinion, especially given that its ally is Ottoman Turkey and it's appealing to Muslim opinion in North Africa and India and across Asia, that Germany is a friend of the Islamic world. To what extent did Germany and her allies seek to actually fight the other allies in the colonies themselves? How much did they try and bring the war to places like Africa and India? Well, I think one of the great dilemmas, one of the great paradoxes of the First World War is the country with the greatest empire, the country with the greatest global reach, the most powerful fleet, the country that is the great global power, is the main country that doesn't want the war to be global, and that's, of course, Britain. Britain wants to fight the war in Europe and in a blockade of Germany. What it doesn't want to do is see the war spread to its colonies. Germany, the country which after 1915 has almost none of its empire left, is desperate to spread the war into the empire. Germany has everything to gain by spreading discord in the British and French empires and the hope that that will divert soldiers who would be fighting in, in France away from the Western Front to police the empire. The German strategic dream, really, is to put Britain in the position where it has to make a choice between defending its empire and defeating Germany in France and Belgium. It never achieves that, but that's the sort of strategic ideal to put Britain in that sort of catch-22 situation. 
So Germany does everything it possibly can to try to spread the war into the British and the French empires, and the British and the French do everything they can to make sure that the war is focused on Europe or in 1915 on Turkey and Gallipoli. It's not in their interests for the war to be spread. Britain wants to maintain the Suez Canal, it wants to maintain the oil fields in the Middle East, and it wants to be able to police and protect its empire. It's happy to seize the German colonies as they come up. The German colonies in the Pacific are snapped up by the Australians and the, and, and the Anzacs. The colonies in West Africa, Southwest Africa, East Africa are seized by the British and the French and become mandates after the war. But that's just opportunism. That's not really, it's not a war aim. Germany's war aim is to make it possible to set fires of discord, revolution, revolt, uh, Islamic ferment, any tool it can find to force the British and the French to send their troops away from France. And it's a perfectly logical and sensible strategy that has some minor successes. When the war's finished and a lot of these people would return home, what kind of homecoming did they get? And, and did Britain and France change their attitude to the imperial subjects after they'd contributed so much to the war? I think there's a desire among people who read about the First World War to convince ourselves that the soldiers who'd fought, who'd come to Europe, to Europe from the empires, that the the black Americans, that the, the, the people who had found themselves dragged into the war, who were not citizens but colonial subjects, that they got a lot out of it, that if they were able to renegotiate uh, the terms of empire, that they were, through their service, their loyalty to their blood, able to demonstrate that the racial barriers around which the empires were organised were inequitous. And I think there's very little evidence for that. There's a lot of evidence that individuals, that groups of veterans, got to understand through the First World War where they really stood in the empire. That the First World War allowed people to have encounters with their colonial masters and with other colonial subjects and fully get a picture of what this project was that they had been drawn into. And I think for individuals who then go on to become important figures in independent struggles, decades later, it's a formative experience. But what you don't get after 1918 is what you get after 1945, which is the beginnings of powerful, popular independence movements which are successful. You have discord after 1919 in Africa. You have a wave of charismatic leaders who are seeking to renegotiate the rules of empire or to free themselves from the shackles of empire, but they're not successful. I would love to say that people took from their their experiences, lessons that allowed them to transform their position, and that the British and French and other empires felt a duty to these men who had served to give them a better lot, to free them from the shackles of empire, or at least ameliorate their conditions. But there's not much evidence that, that happened. Do you think it's just the case that after the Second World War, Britain and France were that much weaker? Well, I think if you look at the efforts of Britain, France, Portugal, the Netherlands, to cling on to their empires in the late 40s, early 50s, if they could, they would have done if you look at the, what happened in, uh, in the Dutch East Indies, what happened in Kenya, what happened in Algeria, and what happened in Mozambique and Angola. I think there was an absolutely determined effort after 1945 to also cling on to the empires, but it was, it was overwhelmed by what people came to think of the wind of change, the, the sense of nationalism, of self-determination. In some ways, the seeds that had been sown in 1918, the idea of national self-determination, that every people have the right to have, have a nation-state and to self, self-administer, 
I think they had taken root to such an extent by 1945, and as you said, the British and the French and the other European empires had been so weakened that it was a different game. In 1918, 1919, into the 1920s, they were in a much, much stronger position. And the record of the empires after the war is one of tightening, tightening their grip. In a country like Britain or maybe France, when they reflected on the victory soon afterwards, did they credit the people who came from India and Africa with their help in the victory, or did they try and sort of brush that aspect of the story aside? Well, there's a very strange... Another paradox, I think, is that if you look at the newspaper reports of the Western Front from 1915 onwards, one of the great tropes of reporting, which is wheeled out time and time again, is reporters going to the Western Front and describing this, this sea of different peoples, this kind of wonderful kaleidoscope of the world, realising that it's unique, that it's never happened before, that this is a phenomenon that one reporter at the time says all the children of France and Belgium will remember for the rest of their lives and tell to their children of these these bizarre days when the people from China and from India and from Africa all came to France to save their nation. There was a strong sense that this was an amazing event. And that you hear that over and over again. It's in pictures. There's books published of portraits of these, this incredible gathering of races. You begin to see a process of airbrushing, really from, from 1919 onwards. And I think you need to be really careful here. Partly what happens is, I think, a deliberate process by which the service of non-white peoples in the European empires and in America is marginalised, is forgotten, or is, is dismissed as not being that important. But there's also a process of countries who have lost millions of their own sons really needing to focus on that, having held back, having tried to be stoic for four years. A country like France with 1.3 million dead needing in some ways, feeling a profound need to focus on their lost sons. So some of it, I think, is deliberate. Some of it, I think, if it comes from colonial officers and from government. Some of it, I think, is a very, very human and understandable reaction of focusing on your own. When people finally get the chance to grieve as nations, and I find myself forgetting just how bedecked in black and in widow's garb Europe was the, the first years after 1918. And there's a reason why you become slightly inward at that moment. Now, obviously, as well as the people who fought from the empires, there were people like, for example, the Chinese, who actually weren't part of an empire, who yet still came to fight in the First World War. How does that kind of situation come about? What brings them to Europe? I think the Chinese are a really interesting example. The Chinese, this is Republican China, they're desperate to send an army, and they're not allowed to by the British and the French. And they're desperate to send an army because the rulers of Republican China quite rightly and quite early understand that only those nations who've taken part in the war are going to have a say in the peace. And when the map of the world and when the power in the world is reapportioned after the war, that getting a seat in the peace conference is going to be critical. They also work out very early on that the British and the French are going to win. The Chinese never achieve that. They're allowed to send labourers, but not soldiers. They call them uh, labourers as soldiers. That's as far as they're allowed to contribute to, to the war, and they don't get a seat on the peace conference. By contrast, Siam, modern Thailand, which is not a colonial power, neither China, but China is undermined by treaties, by uh, extraterritoriality. The Siamese very, very cleverly work out how to play the game of empire and they choose to send 
after they declare war in 1917, not an army of laborers, but an army of specialists, of surgeons, of pilots, of people with very, very specialist skills. So the Siamese, under their leader, their Western-educated king, Rama VI, work out exactly the same lesson the Chinese have worked out. You need to fight, you need to send people, because you need to get a seat at the peace conference. But they are not forced, like the Chinese, to send laborers. They're not willing to send cannon fodder. They send specialists. They send pilots who they've taught to fly. They send surgeons and people with highly specialized, highly needed skills to the Western Front. They very carefully manage their declaration of war, manage their relationship with the Allies. They're very, very careful that their units, when they arrive in France, very late in the war, are treated not as coolies, not as laborers, but as members of an Allied army. They're so sophisticated in their understanding of the need to be on the winning side in this great global war that's going to shape the 20th century, that they even change their flag. The Thai flag in 1914 is the elephant banner. It's a red banner with a white elephant on it. The king scraps that, produces the modern flag, which is red, white, and blue. It's a tricolor. It's still the flag of modern Thailand. And it's chosen because it's going to look good alongside the stars and stripes and the Union Jack and the French tricolor. It's that stage managed. It's that sophisticated. And what I love about that story and what I love about the experiences of the Siamese Expeditionary Force is that they play the game of empire brilliantly. They do get a seat at Versailles. They do march through the, uh, the Arc de Triomphe in the victory campaign, the victory marches of 1919. They play the game of empire brilliantly. So there are people who are non-European, non-white, who see this war as an opportunity and actually get what they want. And it's interesting what you said about China not being allowed to fight on the Allied side. I mean, why was it when you know, Britain and France were crying out for men, why did they turn down this opportunity to tap into a potentially huge resource of manpower? The British and the French all have concessions in China. China is a country that's being not carved up, but is losing its, its rights. The infiltration of the Americans and the Europeans into their economy is very stark and the British don't need their, their, their soldiers. What the British want is their alliance with the Japanese to be strong. Japan's the country, especially after 1905, that is the great power in the East and they are an allied power. They don't need the Chinese, they don't want the Chinese to gain from the war a sense of national identity, a sense of pride, a sense that they have power over their own nation, that they might want the Europeans out. They're extremely cautious about giving the Chinese any say, any role in the war from which they could then build a political momentum. So what is striking, looking at the rather desperate pleas of the leaders of Republican China in 1914-1915, is what a bizarre sight it is to see a powerless emasculated China. If any country is the contrast between it in 2014 and 1914, it's China. They come cap in hand, asking the Allies, can we send our sons to fight and die on your behalf? And they're rebuffed. The British rebuffed them without even asking their allies. We don't, don't even consider their offers. They only consider accepting labourers when it's obvious that this war's industrial, that it's going to need a lot of manpower. And even then, it's done through private companies, the government's marginalised, it's such a striking thing to see China so weak, so emasculated, so enthralled to the power of Britain and France. It's what a contrast. 
During the filming of this programme, you've been to several countries around the world. How did that impact on how you shaped the story? In some ways, the modern world shaped the story for us. What I think is bitterly ironic is that many of the places we would have wanted to have gone, we couldn't go because it was still too dangerous. It was too costly to have the sort of protection that you need to film in these hostile environments. So many of the places where the First World War outside of Europe touched down and touched communities are still the modern flashpoints. We didn't feel we could justifiably put our crews and our cameramen at risk going to Darfur in the First World War. The Sultan of Darfur answered the call of the, of the Ottoman Sultan and attempted to launch a, a campaign of jihad. We felt we couldn't go to Libya today as a, as a place that was too dangerous. In the First World War, the Senussi tribe of Libya launched a campaign against the British in Egypt. We felt we couldn't go to Iraq to talk about the Mesopotamian campaign, which sent us on Quds, Baghdad and Basra, places that we felt it was just not safe to go. Time and time again, the places we need to go to tell the story, we couldn't go because they're still too dangerous. And nothing has got across to me how much the First World War lives on in the Middle East and in Africa than that experience of sitting there with a map and with the costs of security and realising we could not put ourselves in danger to go to these places. The fires raging there began in the First World War and they're still raging. And some of your own ancestry is from some of these countries where people came to fight the First World War. How did that impact the way you felt about the story and the way you wrote about it? Anybody who thinks they haven't got a connection to the First World War needs to just sit down with parents or grandparents and eventually you'll find one. My connection is somewhat tangential. Is Well, there's two elements to it. I'm half Nigerian and half British. My parents got married in the, in the 60s. And in the mid-60s, they travelled from Marseille to Lagos, where my father's family is from. And they travelled on a ship called the General Mangin. My mother didn't know who General Mangin was in the 1960s, but she learned afterwards, reading Barbara Tuckman's book, The Guns of August, that Mangin had been the great theorist of the French theory of the Force Noir. He'd been the man who had inspired France to recruit a black army. A few years later, my mother was in Lagos, and she came across on Lagos Island the monument to the West African soldiers, the Nigerian soldiers who'd fought in the First World War, and realised she'd never been told anything of that. So I was brought up with these two stories, with the, the, the knowledge that both sides of my family, my mother's family from the north of England, my father's family from the south of Nigeria, had been peoples who had sent their sons to the First World War. And I think a lot of people have these connections, a lot of non-white people in Britain have these connections. And I think it's really interesting and really positive to see Sikh communities in Britain and Pakistani communities in Britain seeing the First World War as something that they have an investment in. And that's in some of the tragedy of this, this century or so of amnesia about the service of these groups is it's disconnected people who now live here, who are now kind of part of our story, part of our country, from feeling that this is their story. And I think it's wonderful now that when you go, I went to the Menin Gate last November and you saw the Indian delegates from the Indian Army from the Pakistani army, and you saw British Sikhs, groups of British Sikhs, with their father's pass cards and their father's medals, grandfathers, I should say, coming to the Menin Gate with wreaths of poppies in what is, in some ways, the most British ceremony imaginable. The Menin Gate ceremony is a daily act of remembrance, the most essential part of British culture that happens to take place in a small town in Belgium. And it's wonderful to see British Sikhs, 
British Pakistanis standing there with the wreaths of the red poppies. Nothing, I think, is a stronger sense that the First World War is a kind of opportunity, the remembrance, the re-remembrance of the First World War is an opportunity for modern Britain to, to reassess what the empire meant, what our roles in it, to tell this wider, more inclusive story. Do you think that during the centenary period that enough emphasis is being made in Britain on the contribution of people from Africa, from the West Indies and from India? I think we'll see. I was at a talk at the British Library and we were talking about what the next four years will be like. And I think we should see the programming, the books coming out at the moment as the kind of opening barrage, if I can use that metaphor, of a four-year-long act of remembrance. And what I'd like to think is that in 2018, that many people in Britain and around the world will have a new understanding of the First World War that is wider more inclusive in lots of ways, not just in terms of race and nationality, than we have at the moment. We have an an image of the First World War, and many people have said this recently and for many years, that's too focused on the Western Front, that's too focused on what David Reynolds and Paul Fussell called the literary war, the war seen through the prism of poetry and, and literature. We've got a war that's too focused on battles and not focused enough on the home front, on the world behind the lines, on the naval war, the war in Africa, the war in the Middle East. There's many, many areas where a more nuanced, a more, I think, more exciting vision of the First World War is available to us. And we've got four years as broadcasters and as writers and readers to to paint this picture. And these next four years are going to be incredibly exciting. And we'll know how far we got in 2018 when we get to that unique Remembrance Day that we're going to have in November that year. I think we we will all see the First World War in a very, very different way, which will be wonderful. That was David Olashoga. The World's War continues next Wednesday on BBC Two at 9pm. And if you've missed the first episode, then you can catch up with it on BBC iPlayer. The accompanying book, The World's War, was published this week by the Head of Zeus. And David is also one of the historians who feature in our August edition, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. Now, the First World War is a topic that will be covered extensively in our History Weekend Festival, which takes place in Malmesbury from the 16th to the 19th of October. We've got close to 40 historians, broadcasters and authors speaking at the event, and tickets are still on sale. Visit historyweekend.com for more details and to purchase tickets. Okay, so that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll try to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who contacted us recently was Igor Uboldi, and apologies if I pronounce that wrong, from Rome. Igor writes, Thank you for your wonderful podcast. I am a fan. Your editions are informative and truly enthralling. I never miss one of your issues. I can find one problem. You do not broadcast on a daily basis. Thank you, Igor, and unfortunately we're not going to be able to do a daily podcast quite yet unless there's a kindly billionaire out there who feels able to fund such a project. And if there is, please do get in touch at the usual address. And please do keep your messages coming in on email and also on social media. We are at History Extra on both Twitter and Facebook. And do keep an eye on our website too, historyextra.com, where we've got history news, galleries, quizzes, and of course hundreds of episodes of this podcast that go back seven years. 
Next week, we're going to be discussing the French Resistance and James Bond, so please do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.